welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brett Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 96th episode of the Nauticast titled The Favorite Child, an analysis of A Clash of Kings Theon 2, in which Theon Greyjoy keeps his streak of humiliating family reunions alive. Never going to break that streak at any point in A Song of Ice and Fire, is he? <laughs> there are a few things more pleasurable than watching a man dig his own richly deserved grave, and that's what this chapter is. It is, but you get a small, just a teeny tiny small sliver of sympathy and pity for Theon by the end of it. A kernel, a kernel of humanity. I'll give him that. A kernel, just one small, small, very, very small kernel. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolf Band, Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake, Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Hedgical, Captain the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, one of the Issa Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorsadelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer of, with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie of the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the They Ds and Gentle Thems. Did I get that right now at this time? Okay, excellent. We were talking about that in pre-production. That was fucking that up for, for the past couple times. Sorry about that, Alex. Uh, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not, serving as a spy for several unnamed high lords and ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive small council. Haldivar, the waiter for Tiwau, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, and finally, Veneras of House Colgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Thank you to our counselors very, very much. And thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler weeks, we sell on all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three duck egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Courtenay, what did the five fingers say to the face Penrose, who asks, Gary and Lannister, where is he going? Where has he been? Is he the tattered prince? Is Bright Roar gone for good? Or is Tyrion going to find it somehow? Hmm. What do you make of that, Jeff? Among the, the many missing persons lists uh, in Westeros, what do you think's happened to him? I, I have no real thoughts besides that he's he's dead. I think there's a number of, of thoughts that say that he's the tattered prince. He's um, the the shadow lord who's on, who's on the run, whose name is, is suddenly slipping my mind. Um What's the one dude that uh, that's in charge of the Stone Men? That Tyrion has the dream about. Those originally supposed to be its own chapter from from a Dance of Dragons. Oh, the, the Shrouded, Shrouded Lord. Lord Shrouded right. Lord. There's that theory that exists as well. I I think that he's dead. I I don't think that we're going to see Bright Roar again. I think there's a thematic side of the Lannisters losing their ancestral sword that makes it really compelling when Jamie Lannister gives up the sword that they melted down from from Ned Stark's ice. 
I think that's important for Jamie and his character arc and his development and his relationship to Brienne that that he ends up giving up the sword that he that he wants that his father especially wanted to possess a, a, a Valyrian steel blade. Uh, Jerry Lannister and a lot of these characters that that disappear all from from the pages of A Song of Ice and Fire that are especially disappear before even the start of the book series. You have to think about like in the reveals in terms in my mind. You have to think about about them in terms of what is it going to mean not just to the characters on page but also to the reader, right? Not just. The, not just the the, the the readers like us that are paying attention to a, a live stream or listening to a chapter by chapter podcast, but the casual readers, right? What's it going to mean for Jurian Lannister to pop in? You're like, oh, I am Jurian Lannister at long last. Here I am. The reader's going to go, who? Jurian Lannister? And I think like there is a segment of the fandom which has looked at you know the return of Aegon Targaryen as as in, in that lens. But I think it's it's misplaced in terms of Aegon Targaryen. It's not misplaced in terms of Jurian Lannister. He suddenly popped back on page because we'd probably be like, okay, what's what's he doing back in the story? What's his purpose in the story? I, I'm getting this look from Emmett, so I know that he has an interesting thought to share. So I will turn it over to you, sir. Oh, I was just going to bring up Young Griff, but then you did because I think yeah, that's the the big exception to that role. Is Young Griff and John Connington are characters, minor characters from the backstory who suddenly explode into prominence. But you can see a role for them, and in retrospect, you can see foreshadowing for it. With Uncle Jerrion, yeah, I don't think he's going to pop up back alive in the in the series. I do think it could be interesting if, like... Yeah, okay, so Tyrion and Danny are going to go west at some point. Maybe separately, mm-hmm. Georgia said it's going to be a while before they interact directly. I could definitely see a, a scene in which Tyrion stumbles upon Uncle Jerrion's bones <laughs> and, like, has some sort of, like, you know, alas, Yorick, I knew him well kind of self-reflection <laughs> moment. That, I think, could potentially work. And, yeah, Bright Roar, up to this point, I think it absolutely has had to be kept off screen to lend that kind of tension to how the Lannisters deal with Valyrian swords that you mentioned. But given, you know, that Tyrion is, is turning on his family finding the bones of the one part of the family he still kind of loved and the, the the sore that's emblematic of them. I could see it being a catharsis there, but that's that's it. I doubt it will have any more role to play. I definitely don't think he's the tattered prince. More than anything, he's just like, George always has like this brother in these families, like the, the, the younger, uh, back-talking, one who's always cracking jokes. That's Benjen, that's Renly, that's Euron in a really dark way. He, like uh, Jerry, and, like, supposedly went to Valyria. So I, I think that's more just what he is. I don't think there's a, a big payoff in the works. I think a mild one in service to Tyrion's character arc is the most I would expect. So, thank you, Sir Courtney, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions here on the Nauticast podcast, you're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher-level patron at patreon.com slash nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. And for all $5 and above a month patrons, we wanted to announce that our next Patreon-only bonus episode, titled Flag Day, in which we analyze some of the many ways in which George makes use of heraldry in A Song of Ice and Fire, and how all these colors run, unlike the red, white, and blue, is coming out in the final week in January. That episode and our 23 other bonus A Song of Ice and Fire episodes and five Fever Dream bonus episodes can be found again at patreon.com slash nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Absolutely. So I, I love the idea, and Emmett suggested this idea of doing this uh, flag day episode. It's all about sigils and heraldry, which it's it's great because George definitely utilizes these different the ways that the banners are blowing in the breeze to communicate story, and it's it's subtle and it's underappreciated, underexplored in the in the fandom, and we hope to give it a little bit of light. But enough about Patreon. Let's turn to Theon Greyjoy. When we last left Theon, he had arrived to the sound of white trumpets emanating from the White Tower, welcoming Theon back to the Iron Islands as the beloved son of Balon Greyjoy. Wait a minute, do, do I have that right? Where's my copy of A Clash of Kings? No, I, I'm afraid I don't have that That correct. Sorry to say that, Theon. Ah, uh, let's see how Theon Greyjoy further beclowns himself in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Theon 2. Theon Greyjoy beholds his first and thinks she looks beautiful. 
But then a woman comes up to him and asks if he likes the look of her. He does, but he rather likes the look of the woman more. Ironborn, he knew at a glance, lean and long-legged with black hair, cut short, wind-chafed skin, strong, sure hands, a dirk at her belt. Her nose was too big and too sharp for her thin face, but her smile, oh, that made up for it. He judged her a few years older than he was, but no more than five and twenty. She moved as if she were used to a deck beneath her feet. George, being the good Irishman that he is, is casually winding up the audience for the fun practical joke that he has planned for Theon. So much fun. The woman, though, plays, quote, hard to get with Theon. Is that correct? Is that what's going on here? But Theon insists on tasting her tongue. The woman asks Theon whether he's been long at sea and if there'd been no women where he came from. Theon ignores the first question and focuses on the second. There were plenty of women in the Greenlands, but none like you. And how would you know what I'm like, the woman asks. My eyes can see your face, my ears can hear, hear your laughter, and my cock's gone hard as a master. <laughs> That's for you. Ah, oh, Theon. Ah, oh, chivalry, not dead in a Clash of Kings, Theon too. But Asha, oh wait, the woman gives Theon a bit of encouragement by going for a quick dick swipe on Theon. She admits that Theon wasn't lying about being hashtag erect. She asks whether Theon's dick hurts, and Theon says yes, it really, really does. But the woman claims that she's wed and pregnant, so she can't help with any of that. Theon, extraordinarily charming, says that's all well and good. He, can, he can't put a bastard in her. But she demurs, saying that her husband wouldn't be too thrilled with Theon doinking her. No, but you might. And why would that be? I've had lords before. They're made the same as other men. Have you ever had a prince, he asked her. When you're wrinkled and gray and your teats hang past your belly, you could tell your children's children that once you loved a king. <laughs> Let me pause here. I mean, I'm trying to imagine the scenario that Theon is imagining. Gather around, grandchildren. Grandma's brought cookies, and she's going to tell everyone about that time she fucked Theon. Yeah, Theon of House Greyjoy. The cookies are chocolate chip and still warm. The woman teases back that Theon ain't talking about love, and Theon thinks he likes this woman, and says he'll name his longship after her, and play some Wonderball on the high harp for her, and keep her all up in a castle like a princess. The woman agrees with Theon saying that he should name the ship after all after her. She built it after all. She did? Yeah, well, kind of. Her husband, Sigurn, built the ship. By the way, her name is very definitely Eskrid. This gives Theon pause. He didn't know that Sigurn had a wife, but fuck it, Sigurn's just some barely not peasant. He only met the dude once, so he figures that Eskrid is wasted on Sigurn. Oh, Sigurn told me the sweet ship is wasted on you. Theon bristled. Do you know who I am? Prince Theon of House Greyjoy. Who else? <laughs> Screws are being turned. It's awesome. Eskrid wants to know if Theon likes the ship, and Theon thinks about how new the ship felt underneath of him. Aaron Dampere was going to bless the ship the next day, and it wasn't a massive warship like his father's or his uncle's ship, but she was fast with a lean black hull 100 feet long. In other words, it's not about the size of the boat, it's about the motion in the ocean. He says that Sigrun's did a, done a fine job and asks if the ship is as fast as she seems. Quite Esgrid replies, it'd be faster for someone who knows how to handle ships. It has been a few years since I sailed a ship, and I've never captained one, if truth be told, Theon thought. Still, I'm a Greyjoy and an Iron Man. The sea is in my blood. And your blood will be in the sea if you sail the way you talk, Esgrid told him. I would never mistreat such a fair maiden. Fair maiden, she laughed. She's a sea bitch, this one. There, and now you've named her. Sea bitch. Esgrid's eyes sparkle, and she 
plays playfully states that Theon said he would name the ship after her. Theon grabs her hand and declares that if they'd gone to Bone Town, that it would be good fortune for him. Or so they say in the Greenlands. This causes Asha Shit Eskrid to call him a liar. Besides, the Greenlanders didn't know anything about ships or women. Theon asks if he confesses that he was lying to her, that she'll love him, and Eskrid asks whether she's ever loved him. Ouch, Theon, you don't even know how bad you got burned there. All the same, Theon knows that Dampere will bless the ship the next day with seawater or some shit. But today, the- oh God, here we go. But today, Theon wants to bless his ship in his own unique way with his cum. Amazing. Esgrid again demurs, saying that the drowned god won't take kindly to all that, and Theon, a very cool college atheist with a YouTube channel, says he doesn't care about the drowned god. He'll drown the drowned god all over again if he bothers him. Besides, they're going to war. You don't want to let Theon go in. Fuck, do you? <laughs> Esgrid will fuck Theon, but just in a different way than he imagines. We'll get to all that soon enough. They go back and forth with flirtatious banner, and Eskrid once again slides a hand across Theon's dick. This causes Theon to invite her to another tall tower at Pike, but Eskrid has no horse. Theon offers his squire's horse to Eskrid, so kind of Theon, but she declines that too. So Theon says they can share the horse. Eskrid considers asking where she'll be sitting if they ride together, and when Theon says wherever, she, wherever she'd like, Eskrid says she likes being on top. Now, what does that mean? Okay, we're moving on. But then Eskrid goes, agrees to go with Theon. So, they head back to the inn at Lordsport, where Theon left his horse. Lordsport proves crowded with people, but then Theon notices something about the people. Ironmen did not bend their knees often nor easily, but Theon noted the oarsmen and townsfolk alike grew quiet as they passed, and acknowledged him with respectful bows of the head. They've finally learned who I am, he thought, and passed time too. Basically, everything's coming up Theon in this chapter. Lord Goodbrother had brought 40 ships into Lordsport the night before, and all the Goodbrother men were about the town. Eskrid asks if Theon had chosen his crew yet, but before Theon can answer, she calls down to one Skyrim NPC named Bluetooth, asking about his new wife. She, he reports that she'll have twins soon. When Theon asks if he should have Bluetooth for his crew, Eskrid says, no, 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 don't do that. Bluetooth is already a captain of his own boat. Theon reports that Victarians loaned him Brimal Stormdrunk, another Skyrim NPC, his steersman, and Eskrid thinks he's, a, he's an okay steersman so long as he stays sober. But then Eskrid is chatting with more and more people, and Theon comments that everyone seems to know her. Well, true enough, everyone knows and loves the shipwright's wife. Uh-huh. All the same, Theon's at the point where he wants men loyal to him over Balon, Victarion, and of course, Aaron Dampere. Eskrid suggests a few, and Theon humors her with thinking that he values her counsel. But seriously, my bros, what do fucking girls know about boats, am I right? Hell yeah, no. The pair passes near the mirror ham, the boat that Theon arrived on, if you remember from Theon's first chapter, and Theon picks up his pace, thinking about how Balin had forbidden any ships from leaving the harbor. But that's not why he's practically running away from the ship. My lord, a plaintive voice called down from the forecastle of the merchanter. The captain's daughter leaned over the rail, gazing after him. Her father had forbidden her to come ashore, but whenever Theon came to Lordsport, he spied her wandering forlornly around the deck. My lord, a moment she called after him, as it pleased my lord. Now, it's the captain's daughter from Theon's first chapter, and Theon ain't pleased to see her. So, he does what any good noble man does. He ignores her. Eskert asks if the girl pleased Theon, and he says, yeah, I guess so, for a moment, but she was kind of plain and dumb. Eskert agrees to Theon's surprise. He she just knows so much about what's going on in Theon's mind. But they finally come up to the inn where Theon had left his squire Wex. He goes in looking for the boy and finds him dicing and gambling. Theon tells Wex that they need to ditty Mao, but Wex ignores Theon until the quote prince grabs the boy by the ear and drags him away. Wex comes without complaining, and he really can't complain given that he's dumb of speech. Remember that? They emerge from the inn and then Wex sees Eskrid. 
The boy's eyes go wide, and Theon wonders why he's acting so strangely. Yes, Theon, why? Theon orders Wex to saddle the horses. They're all riding back to Pike. Theon's horse, as it turns out, was a, quote, hell horse, according to Eskrid. He received it from Lord Botley, as most of the Ironborn didn't ride so well in the sparse ground as Theon did. But Theon, of course, had been raised at Winterfell, and he knew how to ride. Eskrid asks the horse's name as they mount, and Theon says it's Smiler, named for how Theon was told he smiled at all the wrong things. Eskrid gets up front and asks if Theon is smiling now, and yeah, he is. He reaches his arm around Eskrid to grab the reins, smelling Eskrid and noticing how she's nearly as tall as him, but he likes that smell of woman on her. They ride up to Pike. Theon attempted to cop feels and Eskrid the entire ride up. It's really quite uncomfortable. Eskrid keeps pushing Theon off of her, warning him that his squire is watching. All the while, Theon talks and talks and talks. God, he never shuts the fuck up. He tells her about the Whispering Wood, and as he reaches the part about so totally nearly killing Jamie Laster, he goes for another boob squeeze. Eskrid brushes his hand off and holds his hand to prevent him from going for more feels. Theon notes that her hands are firm. But then Eskrid changes the direction of the conversation. Tell me of your father. Will he welcome me kindly to his castle? Why should he? He scarcely welcomed me, his own blood. The heir to Pike in the Iron Islands. Are you? She asked smiling. It's said that you have uncles, brothers, a sister. Pause. My brothers are long dead and my sister. Well, they say Asha's favorite gown is a chainmail hauberk that hangs down past her knees with boiled leather small clothes beneath. Men's garbs won't make her a man, though. I'll make a good marriage alliance with her once we've won the war. If I can find a man to take her. As I recall, she had a nose like a vulture's beak, a ripe crop of pimples, and no more chest than a boy. <laughs> Soak in that for a moment. It feels great, knowing what's coming in just a minute. Eskrid reports that Theon might have some power over Asha's mar- marriage prospects, but he can't marry his uncles off. This is a sort of sore spot for Theon, as he remembers how uncles, especially Greyjoy and Ironborn uncles, have a tendency of disposing annoying weak nephews via murdering the fucking bejesus out of them. But I am not weak, Theon told himself, and I mean to be stronger yet by the time my father dies. Theon is a very, very strong Kraken dad. Regardless, Theon knows that Aaron only cares about his god and Victorian is strong but very fucking dumb. These are true things, but then Eskrid asks about the other uncle of Theon's. I've heard men say terrible things of that one. Theon shifted his seat. My uncle Euron has not been seeing the islands for close on two years. He, He may be dead. If so, it might be for the best, Theon thought. Lord Balon's eldest brother had never given up the old way, even for a day. His silence with its black sails and dark red hull was infamous in every port from Ibn to Ashai, it was said. But Eskrid thinks Theon might be dead, and given how long Euron's been away, the, and the Iron Bird would never seat him onto the, onto the seastone chair. Crisis averted. <laughs> we'll see about that. Theon thinks maybe he can grab another boo, but all this talk of his uncles has made him go from midnight to nine. He'll sex Eskrid as soon as they arrive at Pike, though. Theon tells Eskrid that he'll have her set in a place of honor at the feast, and when old man Balon goes night-night, he's going to come hang out with her for the rest of the night. Eskrid displays some sympathy for Balin, talking about how sad it is when great men grow old. But Theon thinks that Balin is only the father of a great man. Theon, in case you had any doubt. Eskrid calls Theon immodest, which, yeah, and asks Theon what she should wear. Well, Theon plans to give Eskrid one of his mother's gowns, as she's always away at Harlaw and not coming home anytime soon. Eskrid says maybe Theon should go visit her, but Theon thinks that moms are always so annoying wanting to see their children. And Theon can't go anyways. He's just so very, very busy. He can't possibly slip away. Eskrid says, well, maybe his her visit will bring a peace. And Theon's like, you sound like a fucking girl. And Asha, <clears throat> Eskrid agrees. She's very new with child and a woman too. This gets Theon's 
dick hard and he thinks about banging a pregnant chick but he comments that Eskrit doesn't seem very pregnant he's going to need to see those boobs get big and ripe and drink the milk from them yes George uh, Theon we get it you have a lactation fetish <sighs> this chapter <laughs> I love it, but it's this chapter. We then proceed to more banner between Eskrid and Theon, revisiting the topics of how Eskrid is Sigurd and the shipwright's wife. Eskrid encourages Theon to talk more about Rob Stark and the Lannisters, and Theon can't keep his trap shut. Finally, Pike appears ahead, and the pair races up to the gate. The hounds come running, and they bowl Eskrid over. She begins wrestling and laughing with them. A stableman comes out, and Theon orders him to take the reins of the horse, but he ignores him. The stableman's face broke into a huge gap-toothed smile, and he said, Lady Asha, you're back. Last night, she said, I sailed from Great Wick with Lord Goodbrother and spent the night at the inn. My little brother was kind enough to let me ride with him from Lordsport. She kissed one of the dogs in the nose and grinned at Theon. All Theon could do was stand and gape at her. Asha, no, she can't be Asha. He realized suddenly that there were two Ashes in his head. One was the little girl he had known. The other, more vaguely imagined, looked something like her mother. Neither looked a bit like this, this, this... Pimples went when the breast came, Asha explained while she tussled with the dogs, but I kept the vulture's beak. This is the Thanksgiving turkey in the oven levels of delicious smells. It's wonderful. Just waft that in. It's fantastic. Theon in shock demands to know why Asha didn't identify herself. Asha let go of the hound and straightened. I wanted to see who you were first. And I did. She gave a mocking bow. And now, little brother, pray excuse me. I need to bathe and dress for the feast. I wonder if I still have the chainmail gown like I used to wear over my boiled leather small clothes. She gave him that evil grin and crossed the bridge with that walk he'd like so well, half sonner and half sway. Theon turns and finds Wex smirking at him. He clouts Wex dunk style in the ear for not warning him, even if Wex didn't have a tongue. He heads up to his chambers in the guest keep. Ouch, that Theon is in the guest keep. That must have hurt. And gets a good glass of wine for drink and thinks that he really, really made an ass out of himself this time. He drinks at the window seat and watches the sea brooding. I have no place here, he thought. And Ash is the reason that the others take her. Well... You kind of get partial credit here for Theon. You really don't have a place here at Pike. Not sure that Ash is the reason, though. Then he hears the music, gets into somber, dark and gray clothing to reflect his mood, commenting that he didn't have any fine iron-priced clothing as he only kills the poor. Lovely, Theon. Just your internal monologue is just amazing. And then heads down to the feast. He finds the hall smoky with 400 people within. Harlaws, Blacktides, Spars, Merlins, Good Brothers, Saltcliffs, Sunderleys, Botleys, and Winches. Most of the major Ironborn families are present. Meanwhile, three Ironborn morons, because they are fucking morons, perform the finger dance, a quote, game where the Ironborn throw axes at each other and try to catch them midair. It's called the finger dance because the dancers often lose a finger, or five. No one really pays attention to Theon as he enters. He sees Balin up on the sea stone chair, a quote carved in the shape a, a chair quote carved in the shape of a great kraken from an immense block of oily black stone. I think it's our first mention of oily black stone in Song of Ice and Fire. Theon thinks about how legend had it that the ancient Ironborn found this, the chair on the shores of Old Wick. Then, then Theon notices that Balin is flanked by Victorian and Aaron, but it was Asha who had the seat of honor at Balin's right hand. You come late, Theon. Lord Balin observed. I ask your pardon. Theon took an empty seat beside Asha. Leaning close, he hissed in her ear. You're in my place. She turned to him with innocent eyes. Brother, surely you are mistaken. Your place is at Winterfell. 
Asha, stop flaying Theon with your words. Okay, maybe flaying's an impolite word to use here. She asks after Theon's former fancy clothes, and Theon notices that Asha is garbed in soft green wool tight to her body. He tries insulting Asha back, asking where all the iron she normally wears is, and Asha says that Theon might end up seeing this, but he'd have to catch her aboard her black wind in his slower seepage. Anyways, what you drinking tonight, Theon? Ale? Or maybe some breast milk? Theon flushes and says he's drinking wine. He's, he's been drinking wine for a while. Theon tries eating some stew, but he realizes he's already extremely fucking shithoused. But maybe if he throws up, he can puke on Asha? Question mark? He tries engaging Asha again, asking if Daddy Balin knows that she's married to Shipwright. Asha replies that she hasn't married Sigurd. Eskrid was the name of the first ship he built after his mother. Theon angrily retorts that everything Asha said was a lie. But Asha's like, not everything was a lie. She likes being on top. Now really fucking pissed, Theon practically stamps his feet like a child, saying that Asha lied about being a woman wedded with a child. Oh, that part was true enough. Asha leapt to her feet. Rolf, here! She shouted down at one of the finger dancers, holding up her hand. She, he saw her, spun, and suddenly an axe came flying from his hand. The blade gleamed as it tumbled on end over end through the torchlight. Theon had time for a choke gasp before Asha, snatched, before Asha snatched the axe from the air and slammed it down the table, splitting the trencher in two and splattering his mantle with drippings. There's my lord husband. His sister reached down inside her gown and drew a dirk between her breasts. And here's my sweet suckling babe. Oh, I just love this this scene. It's just amazing. Everyone starts roaring with laughter at Theon, and he knows they're all laughing at him. Even Victorian, who, by the way, was not made for dancing, starts to laugh. Balin, too. He smiles, which is odd. Theon attempts to grin back like he's in on the joke, but he's not. Everyone knows the truth, too. Asher removes the dagger and tells Theon to heed her counsel about choosing a good crew. Theon needs to know his crew, much like if Theon had bothered to learn one goddamn thing about Sigurn, he wouldn't have been fooled by Asha. Ten years, Wolf, and you land here and think to Prince about the islands, but you know nothing and no one. Why should men fight and die for you? I, I am their lawful prince, Theon said stiffly. By the laws of Greenlands, you might be, but we make our own laws here. Or have you forgotten? Theon scowls and begins fuming about how he came back to the island came back to the Iron Islands only to face mockery, and this really wasn't how he remembered things. Or, well, maybe it was that. Kind of the way that was. Theon had been really young when he left and hadn't known the full truth. I'm sure Theon's going to figure things out soon enough, though. But then Balon rises from the Seastone chair and states that it's well past time to get to the war shit. He has a plan. Plan, okay, to announce. Theon jumps up to please his dad, but Asha makes fun of him for rushing off. When Theon's like, but dad said, Asha says that she's not going to rush about, but if Theon wants to go spreading after his dad and uncles, it'd be an easy task given how Aaron is drunk on seawater and Victorian is, and I love this, so I'm quoting it, a quote, gray, great bullock so dim he'll probably get lost. So Theon sits his ass back down, saying he's not going to run after any man. No man, but every woman, Asha says. It was, it was not me who grabbed your cock. I don't have one, remember? You grabbed every bit of me quick enough. Theon could feel the flush creeping up his cheeks. I'm a man with a man's hungers. What, what, what sort of unnatural creature are you? Only a shy maid. Asha's hand darted out under the table to give his cock a squeeze. Theon nearly jumped from his chair. What? Don't want me to steer you into port, brother? Marriage is not for you, Theon decided. When I rule, I believe I will pack you off to the silent sisters. Theon jumps to his feet and runs after Balin. No, no, it's definitely not because he wants to avoid getting verbally incinerated again by Asha. No way. Not that man. Theon is a big, strong man. He just really needs to go see what, uh, what Balin is planning. 
Theon stumbles out to the rope bridge at the sea tower and is able to unsteadily make it across the bridge, gripping the ropes tightly, pretending like a little fucking child that it's Asha's neck he's grabbing. He finds Balin under all those lovely sealskin robes in the tower. When Balin sees his, quote, son, he immediately announces his plan. Theon has a few suggestions, but good dad Balin tells him when he wants Theon's opinion, he'll give it to the boy. Anyways, when the drums and stone houses arrive at Pike, they're all going to sail. Not Balin, of course, everyone else. Theon will have the, quote, honor of drawing first blood by taking eight longships and raiding the stony shore. If all goes well, Theon will draw the northern lords out of their castles, and Theon will have the helpful advisors of Uncle Aaron and Dagger Cleftjaw with him. Dampere intones about the drowned god, but Theon fumes. He felt as if he had been slapped. He was being sent to do reaver's work, burning fishermen out of their hovels and raping their ugly daughters. And yet, it seems Lord Balin did not trust him sufficiently to even do that much. Bad enough to have to suffer the Dampere's scowls and chidings with Dagmar Clefjaw along as well, his command would be purely nominal. But then Balin turns to Asha, my daughter. God, it's just got to burn. Ouch. She t- she's going to take 30 longships and raid at Sea Dragon Point. She'll land north of Deepwood Mott and take the castle. Asha likes this idea and says that she's always wanted a castle. Theon, still fuming, knows Deepwood Mott and thinks he should have been granted Deepwood. But before Theon can stew some more, Balin then turns to Victorian Dumbassistunk Brayjoy and orders him to sail up the Saltspear and Fever River. Hmm, nice little reference there. Victorian will land outside of Deepwood Mott and take the castle, cutting Rob Stark and his ability to come back north. And the Lannisters will cut him off to the south. He'll be trapped. Evil laugh by the Greyjoys. It's, it's a shitty plan. It's so fucking shitty. Theon could not keep sound. A bold plan, father, but the lords in their castles. Lord Balin rode him over. The lords are gone south with the pub. Those that remain behind are the Cravens, old men, and green boys. They will yield or fall. One by one, Winterfell made a fight a year. But what of it? The rest shall be ours, forest and field and hall. And we shall make the folk our thralls and salt wives. <laughs> okay, buddy. I'm, I'm just like, okay, this is just a shitty fucking plan. Oh, my God. The Ironborn, the great choice. Damp hair intones piously about the, the drowned god, spreading his dominion through the lands. Everyone, even a reluctant Theon, does their what is dead may never die chant to each other, and the grand master strategy of history's greatest motherfucking dumbass comes to a close. Wait, what, dumbass? How can I say it's just an evil thing, Jeff? Because I can, and I'm right. Theon emerges outside the sea towers, the rain falls, and the wind blows. He tries crossing the rope bridge, but a gust of wind makes him stumble to his knees. Asha helped him rise. You can't hold your wine either, brother. Theon leaned on her shoulder and let her guide him across the rain slick boards. I liked you better when you were escorted, he told her accusingly. She laughed. That's fair. I liked you better when you were nine. And that is a Clash of Kings Theon 2. The let's laugh at Theon for the entirety of this chapter of A Song of Ice and Fire. I love it. It's great. It's hilarious. The Greyjoys are all fucking idiots. It's amazing. What did you think of this chapter, dude? This is one of those chapters that makes me want to get like a mind wipe so I could read it again for the first time. <laughs> Theon 2 is a perfect slice of comedy, a steadily building joke that Theon realizes far too late is on him. This time through, I thought of the whole chapter from Asha's perspective, and it got even funnier. She must have heard about his arrival while on Harlaw, visiting their mother. Presumably, she thought Theon might pose a threat to her hard-won status as Balin's heir. She had to feel him out, see what she was up against with this new rival. And then, like, 30 seconds into the conversation, she clearly thought to herself, Oh, okay, he's a complete tool. There's no threat here whatsoever. Time to have some fun. And so she does, and so do we. Exactly. And for me, and my opening thoughts about this, is that before there was the British, and it's far superior American version of The Office, before Curb Your Enthusiasm, before Veep, before, quote, cringe comedy was a term in common usage, 
there was George R.R. R. Martin and the cringe comedy of a Clash of Kings, Theon 2. You know, it's one of my favorite aspects of doing this on a reread. You talked about how it would be nice having a mind wipe and be able to read this chapter again. But I, I find there's a lot of enjoyment, too, in knowing the reveal is coming um, at the towards the end of this chapter. And, you know, one of my favorite aspects, too, of doing this reread podcast is that by knowing the reveal of Eskridge slash Asha ahead of time, we can really get to enjoy how badly Theon is fucking himself up. But speaking a little bit more about cringe comedy, it, it has immense value in, in setting a target on the back of transgressive behavior through the most subversive of means, mockery. I mean, we laugh at Michael Scott's behavior because of how wrong it is. And we laugh at Theon because all of his arrogance, his sense of entitlement, those things that we just, you know, we should be honest about it, those kind of rapey vibes he pulls puts out, they and Theon all get comeuppance through Asha's reveal at the end of this chapter and the mass mockery that gets leveled on Theon at the end, at chapter's end. Man, that feast scene, I mean, it's, it's so amazing at one point that you kind of go like a full 360 and you almost feel bad for Theon at the end of the chapter everyone's laughing. I mean, not, not a whole lot, but I mean, just a little bit, just a teeny tiny little bit when everyone's laughing at him. So I was comparing this chapter as I read it to another chapter largely devoted to the introduction of a single character, and that's A Storm of Swords Tyrion V with Oberyn Martell. That chapter takes its time building up to the introduction of Oberyn, putting him in context with the Dornish heraldry that we're going to talk about in our heraldry episode, and Tyrion's increasingly nervous thoughts about the person he's going to have to deal with. But in this chapter... Asha's introduction happens immediately, like in the second line, with zero context, and the chapter hurdles forward from there, because the author is hiding her true identity and so benefits from keeping the audience a step behind. It's a noticeable stylistic break, especially on reread when you know why. Theon 2 sets its tone immediately by opening with a sex joke, equating women with a boat. Theon talks about how your fear first one is always beautiful, clearly talking about sex when he's, you know, on the surface talking about a boat. And storytellers have always drawn links between our sexual desires and the vessels we construct around us, especially those meant for war. For Theon, though, his new boat represents both his dick and the women he wants to stick it in. Like, we see the former association throughout the chapter when they're talking to a guy on the street. Fat with child and talking of twins. So soon. Eskard smiled that wicked smile. You got your oar in the water quickly? Aye, and stroked and stroked and stroked, roared the man. Or just between the two of them, would you make me your captain for the night, my lord prince? I might, if I knew you'd steer me safe into port. Well, I know which end of the oar goes in the sea, and there's no one better with ropes and knots. And then at the at the dinner scene, Asha's hand darted out under the table to give his cock a squeeze. Theon nearly jumped from his chair. What? Don't you want me to steer you into port, brother? So you see this this uh, easy metaphor being set up. And you, you can also see it in Theon's comments about how, how his boat isn't as big as his dad's or his uncle's. But, you know, it still looks sweet and has a nice ram. Eh. Mm. <laughs> the same dynamic is at work with his horse, Smiler. Theon describes him as... Not as big as most knights' horses, which is fine, because Theon isn't as quite as big as a knight. But hey, ladies, Smiler's still aggressive and fiery and too much for some. <laughs> and this is all the funnier on reread when you know that his uncle, that Theon is like subtle compared to his uncle Aaron, because Aaron named his boat the Golden Storm and wanted to shape its ram like a dick. So there's a clear boat penis association here befitting the violent masculine ideal of the old way Ironborn. We sail out from here to fuck Westeros bloody. On the other hand, Theon starts the chapter by comparing his first boat to his first sexual partner, a woman, and then compares it to Asha, and then names it Sea Bitch. We call boats she, after all, so which is it? Are they the screw or the screwed, in Theon's mindset? There's, it's, it's confused, and I think what this confusion is getting at is the sexual dynamic between Theon and Asha, in which he thinks he's the screw, but he's actually getting screwed. He thinks he's on top, but as she says, she likes to be on top. She's actually in charge, and he just doesn't know it. 
This goes hand in hand with Theon describing Asha as potentially having a man's appetites and Balin referring to both of them as my sons. It's not that Asha actually identifies as a man or has penis envy. It's that she performs ironborn masculinity better than Theon despite being a woman. And all of this, of course, perfectly sets up Ramsay castrating Theon, taking his power and identity away completely where Asha challenges them for fun. Do you think it's fair to say that both Ramsay and Asha are kind of putting Theon through the same ringer and taking advantage of the same weaknesses, even though, of course, their endgames are totally different? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Theon is basically his his weakness is, is everything but especially it's his his sexual proclivities he's got a lot of weaknesses yeah but he's his sexual proclivities and Asha immediately zeroes in on them and you have to I, I would have to imagine that Asha probably had some little bit of intelligence though, of knowing who Theon was and how he kind of rode, rolled into Lordsport and was with with the type of company that he was he was aware of like there's that that reference later on in this chapter to 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 the merchant's daughters or the to the daughter of and how you know, Asha's making these observations. Theon's like, she's so spot on. She's amazing. So to me, it feels like Asha had done a little bit of intelligence preparation of the battlefield before actually encountering Theon Greyjoy. So she hones in on his weakness and she hones on it very, very well. Yes, indeed. So to drill down to specifics, Theon immediately sees that Asha belongs here. She's ironborn at a glance, he can tell, moving like she's used to a deck beneath her feet. And what he doesn't yet realize is that he looks like the opposite to her and everyone else. He looks like a mainland fop who doesn't know the first thing about a sailor's <laughs> life. What he uses to compensate for that, as in Theon 1, is sex. Because sex is the one domain in which he feels confident and in which he can be in charge. He immediately starts hitting on her with what we could consider the signature Theon mixture of predatory aggression and semi-ironic sweetness. Just like Dantos and the gods would in Sansa 2, Theon knows the script of chivalry. He knows what he's supposed to say. But also like Dantos, Theon keeps giving away that this is a performance, that it's all just a shadow on a wall. So on the one hand, he'll pontificate about how he longs for her and how he'll die distraught in battle if she doesn't fuck him. But on the other hand, he very sarcastically mocks the princess in a tower trope when, she, oh, yeah. when he's talking about her. So George is showing us how the Shining Knight from the songs isn't actually the stable foundation of society you can rely on. It's just an image which can be easily manipulated by people uninterested in living up to chivalric values. They're just wearing them like a mask. Maybe the most telling example of that in this scene is how Theon frames sex with him as an event worthy of story and song, something to tell your grandkids about. <laughs> and that's in response to Asha saying that she's had princes and they're made the same as other men. So by then lurching into story and song, Theon is basically admitting that, yeah, she's right. His cock is not magical. It's not special in itself. It's only special because he's Prince Theon of House Greyjoy. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that doesn't really impress anybody. Theon, like so many characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, is caught between the ideal and the reality and so winds up the worst of both worlds. We'll see this again later in the book at Winterfell, where he doesn't even have the, you know, honesty to act as a conqueror. He actually expects the people to love him like they did Ned Stark. Moreover, George has Prince Theon getting turned on by the sight of sexing Esgrid because she's bound to marriage to Sigurn. It'd be easy for the scenes, I think, simply to be Theon being a romantic, predatorial dumbass, but Theon's refrain of trying to get Esgrid to break her marriage vows works in service to Theon's turn cloaking in the Stark storyline. Of course, we've already seen Theon remembering how he and Patrick Malister went and visited a, quote, amorous Miller's wife before he departed Seaguard, and we'll see a much more brutal version of this aspect of Theon's personality with regard to another Miller's wife outside of Winterfell and the mercy that she asked for before Theon's been killer. But the symbolism of Theon's transgress but the but the symbolism of Theon's transgressive sexuality works as subtle story building of Theon's turn cloak transgression. You, I mean, you can imagine Theon thinking this. You, a married woman, slept with me. And I, a man who, I guess I sort of kind of pledged my sword to Rob Stark at River Run. 
uh, betrayed my oath, maybe possibly, possibly betrayed my oath. We're not so much different, you and I, right? I mean, that's basically the mentality that Theon is bringing into this conversation with Sigurd and the cuckolding that he's hoping to bring to this master, to his father's master of ships. And Theon wants to skip over this this border, this division, because it reflects how Theon has a foot in both worlds with no clear home or identity in either one. You know, Asha keeps talking in this chapter about outsiders like Euron and the captain's daughter, and Theon only gradually realizes that she's actually talking about him. As he says, ten years at Winterfell left him far more comfortable going to war with a horse between his legs than a ship beneath them. He admits it only in the privacy of his thoughts in this first conversation. He's never actually captained a ship before, making him... A virgin, you could say? And he banishes these thoughts by focusing all his energies on prying open Asha's legs. But in the process, he misses all the signs that she's not what she appears. And that proves her point. That proves those negative thoughts he's having about himself right. This isn't just Asha dismantling a rival. This is her arranging a case study to demonstrate why he shouldn't be in charge. He fails the test. This is how he approaches situations, and it's really bad. Theon's trying so hard in this chapter to regain the swaggering equilibrium his father and uncle tore to shreds in Theon 1, but by the end, he's only fallen farther. Absolutely. He's basically embodying the soft elements that the Ironborn have rejected and that his father specifically rejected in his first chapter. He's basically failed yet another test, right? The first test he failed was coming into Lordsport itself and with Aaron Dampere. Second failed test was with his father, Balin Greyjoy. Third failed test is here with Asha. He's demonstrating that he's not cut out to be heir to the Iron Islands. Like you were saying at the beginning of this episode about how you could imagine this from Asha's point of view and how she maybe saw Theon as a potential threat to her role as the heir. But by by this point in the conversation, he's just a doofus. He's a fucking moron and he's not really poses that he doesn't pose any threat whatsoever to Asha Greyjoy. So she decides to have a little fun with him in terms of their ride that they're going to make all the way up to Pike and their walk down to Lordsport before all that. Yes. So this opening conversation is self-consciously circular. It's like a lot of great comedy scenes that call attention to how little has been communicated or accomplished in the scene. It ends, the lordling has a honeyed tongue. Isn't that where we began? She threw up her hands. And where we end. So from there, they set out into Lordsport. The camera widens to take in more than just the two of them, and we see in detail how Asha is at home and Theon isn't. He hilariously thinks that everyone is getting silent and bending their heads respectfully to him, (laughs) when of course it's for Asha, the true heir and widely beloved. There's the beautiful irony of Theon saying, they have finally learned who I am, when he hasn't learned who his companion really is. But it's also just so telling that Theon would just blindly believe that everyone would eventually just accept him as their superior, with no work on his part required. This is all he was waiting to happen. He was never planning on earning his place through sweat equity. We'll see that again when he talks with Dagmar in Theon 3. Again, it's the worst of both worlds. Theon is an ambitious slacker, and so he can cause so much more damage than a properly lazy lazy slacker ever could. Like, if he was content to be the Daron, the drunken dreamer of House Greyjoy and just sit in Lordsport getting drunk every day, you know, that's not exactly the most dignified of lives, but it's a life, and it's, it's more than he ends up getting at Ramsay's hands. He wants to be on top, and he knows he needs men loyal to him rather than to the rest of his family, as he thinks to himself in this chapter, but he just has no idea how to make that happen. Asha, by contrast, she knows everyone's name, everyone's profession, everyone's family history. She knows exactly how to talk to each one in turn. She knows when to say what is dead may never die, and Theon can only catch up to mumble it. It's kind of interesting. I mean, Asha is greeting everyone and knowing the small matters of their personal lives. It's Is that like the best Greyjoy equivalent to Ned Stark's line from Arya's Game of Thrones chapter? I think it's Arya 3. Know the men who follow you, she heard Ned tell Rub once. And let them know you. Don't ask your men to die for a stranger. 
question mark. I mean, is, is that basically Asha Greyjoy basically embodying the Stark words? I mean, there's a Stark-like quality to Asha, and I wonder whether that's the literary term that George utilized to make her the most sympathetic Greyjoy in the story. And I'm really kind of curious how Asha was able to attain this leadership trait, given that Balon, Victorian, Aaron, they, they don't exemplify this whatsoever in any of her interactions with them. Theon, though, was raised by Ned Stark, but because Theon knew, knew that he was a hostage to Balon's good behavior, he... Yeah, he has some thoughts about this. Recall Theon's memories from his first chapter about Eddard Stark. Lord Eddard raised him among his own children, but Theon had never been one of them. Lord Eddard had tried to play the father from time to time, but Theon, yeah, he had always remained the man who'd brought blood and fire to Pike and taken him from his home. As a boy, Theon had lived in fear of Stark's stern face and great dark sword. And, and this kind of brought me back to the second chapter in All of a Song of Ice and Fire, Bran's first chapter in A Game of Thrones. Remember Theon kicking Garrett's head after Ned beheaded the man? Remember John calling him an ass for that? You know, looking back at the event with these first two Theon chapters in mind, it reads like Theon's doing everything within his limited power to project that stark solemnity regarding execution. You must look in a man's eyes and hear the last words and you, the man who sent the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. And I think this small example, it could be a microcosm of Theon's relationship with his ideology of his former Stark captors, or foster family, both. My sense is that Theon's resentment and fear of Ned Stark led him to reject the principles of his, quote, foster father, perhaps tossing aside the know-your-men mantra in favor of an arrogant, dismissive attitude towards the work. You know, that's going to change, though, come a Dance of Dragons, because Theon will be course-corrected by Ramsay and come to know the names of the, all the people around him, all the while remembering his own name as Reek, before reclaiming it as Theon in that triumphant moment at the end of A Dance of Dragons. That's a great point. That's a terrific inversion. And yeah, Theon, even as he dismisses Ned Stark, you see him in desperate moments in this book. Uh, Ned is really the only model he can fall back on. It's the only kind of way to be a man he really knows intimately because as much as he's trying to live up to the Ironborn image, he doesn't know it that well because he hasn't been here since he was a kid. Theon can't do any of this right and no one's even bothering to talk to him. And the emotional core of these developments, what makes you relate to Theon despite him being such a tremendous prick, is moments like this. I have been away too long to know one man from another, Theon admitted. He had looked for a few of the friends he'd played with as a boy, but they were gone, dead, or grown into strangers. So even if Theon was more humble and hardworking, he'd still be completely alone in what's supposed to be his home. Still, it's hard to feel too sorry for him when he's manhandling Wex and dismissing the captain's daughter and copying a feel of his riding companion at every turn. As I said in Theon 1, I feel sympathy for Theon regarding what people with power over him do to him, but none at all for how he uses his power over other people. His fragile identity, his overcompensating sexuality, his pathetic stabs at authoritarianism mixed with songs and stories naivete... All of this is played for laughs here, but it will get significantly darker when Theon returns to the north. So Asha continues her interrogation of Theon's po political and cultural isolation when the conversation turns from ships and their crews to House Greyjoy specifically. Theon asserts that he is the heir, in the same breath that he acknowledges that his father doesn't treat him that way. Little does he know that he is fondling the major reason why Balin doesn't treat him like the heir, because he is another option he has come to much prefer. Asha mildly pushes back on Theon's status as the heir, pointing out that, hey, your uncles might want a piece of the pie. Uh, once more, Theon doesn't really have a plan other than hoping for the best. Like, yes, as he says, Aaron and Victarion are born cronies, but they knuckle under to Balin, specifically. 
because he led the ideal masculine old way life. And Theon, as we see throughout this chapter, very much has not. I mean, Theon has already seen that Aaron has no respect for him, so this is a delusional plan. Same goes for when Asha brings up Euron, like, hey, what about that other uncle? The one that, you know, every living thing on Earth is afraid of. What about him? Theon's plan amounts to, I hope that he's dead? Like, that's not a plan. <laughs> and then Asha, very subtly, brings up herself. And all Theon can do is envision her as the child she was. And this exposes the alienation at the heart of Theon's power fantasy in this chapter. His impression of the Iron Islands is permanently stuck in childhood. The islands and his family have moved on while he has been unable to do so in Winterfell. He's not only a stranger here, he's so estranged that he doesn't even know it, the same way a fish doesn't notice water. All he has to offer is his cock and his image, the person he wants to be from the stories and songs, and that image is precisely how Asha unlocks him. It's a cruel lordling who seized me. If I promise you that one day you may watch my babe get suck, will you tell me more of your war, Theon of House Greyjoy? There are miles and mountains still ahead of us, and I would hear of this wolf king you served, and the golden lions he fights. Ever anxious to please her, Theon obliged. The rest of the long ride passed swiftly as he filled her pretty head with tales of Winterfell and war. Some of the things he said astonished him. Like, this is Theon's one asset— the knowledge that he has of Winterfell in the North that no one else on the Iron Islands has, and he's just giving it all away for free. Even Theon is astonished at himself, but what he doesn't seem to understand is that war stories about him fighting alongside Ned Stark's son don't make him impressive in Ironborn eyes. They make him an outsider. That's, Ned, that's the Ned Stark who helped break Pike. They're not going to feel closer to him because Theon is telling these stories. Right. He's also the Ned Stark who, as Balin has, has said in the first, his first chapter, that killed Balin's other sons, which, of course, is not actually what happened. It wasn't Ned Stark who killed Meryn and killed the other one whose name I forget off the top of my head. But in, in actuality, if, if it had come to source as the unthinks in that first chapter, Ned Stark would have killed both of them. And it's it's kind of like I was trying to like just wrap my mind around like a what would be like a modern parallel. I mean, it was, I was thinking like it would be like a. I don't even know, like a, a member of, of, of the Nazi war machine coming back to the American army, joining the American army, being like, yes, remember all that time I killed all those American GIs back in the day? Remember when I served with the Nazis? Like, yeah, that's it's not really going to win you a lot of favors and, and a lot of uh, appreciation in the eyes of the Ironborn. And that all is though, building into that great and amazing reveal of Esgrid, who doesn't turn out to actually be Esgrid, wife of Sigurn. At this point, as a first-time reader, as they're riding up to Pike, you may be wondering if this is really all this chapter is going to be. Like, Theon, Gre Theon Greyjoy gradually gets laid, the chapter. But Theon's clueless arrogance dominated Theon 1 as well, of course, but we had a clear sense of direction from the start. That paper is good as a crown, or is it? In this chapter, we get a sudden twist that completely changes our understanding of what the whole thing has been about, and the humor takes on a whole new dimension. This isn't just some random woman Theon's been inflicting his insecurities on. He's been giving himself away to his major rival for power, and also feeling up his sister in the process. And the moment of the reveal is designed to make perfectly clear that she has won this power struggle before it even really began. The dogs love her, whereas Theon, who will be so at home with Ramsay's dogs, only kicks and snarls at them. The stable man ignores him completely to welcome Asha home with a smile. And in this moment, the full weight of time and distance crashes in on Theon. He realized suddenly that there were two Ashas in his head. One was the little girl he had known. The other, more vaguely imagined, looked something like her mother. Neither looked a bit like this... this... He was not prepared to come home at any level. Not politically, not culturally, and not personally. He was getting hard on his own macho identity, and now he's left with blue balls and the realization that he has no idea who he or anyone else is. 
Asha, appropriately, at this moment turns it all back on the body, mocking what he said about her earlier. The pimples went when the breasts came, she explained while she tussled with the dog, but I kept the vulture's beak. But then she quickly gets to the core of things. When Theon asks, why didn't you tell me? Asha let go of the hound and straightened. I wanted to see who you were first. And I did. She handled her arrival on Pike so much better than he did, getting information without giving any, using all of her strengths, turning weaknesses into strengths. It's such a ferociously intelligent act, coupled with utter fearlessness and a lack of concern with taboo. It's such an intense performance that even Theon, the eternal peacock, is just left gaping. He can, he can only relieve the shame of it later as his erection wilts along with his remaining self-confidence. And just for a moment after this display... Theon achieves clarity, seeing himself as he truly is, thinking to himself he could not possibly have made a more appalling fool of himself. And then immediately he shuts it down. No, he thought then. She was the one who made me a fool. The evil bitch must have enjoyed every moment of it. And then later, I have no place here, he thought, and Asha is the reason. May the others take her. And here we learn all we need to know, really, about how the rest of Theon's arc in this book is going to go. The setting and stakes will change, but this drive does not. Asha thoroughly disarmed him, robbing him not only of his presumed place in Ironborn hierarchy and in House Greyjoy, but the sexual confidence that is at the core of the identity he came up with during his formative years on the mainland. Theon is terrified of starting his identity over from scratch, again, especially in what was supposed to be the cradle of his restoration and self-actualization. So he externalizes all of the blame, his insecurity manifesting as resentment, and he latches onto Asha not only because she personally humiliated him, not only because she's taken his place as heir, but because she rendered him completely undignified at the core of his self-image. She will never be impressed by him, and Theon really needs people to be impressed <laughs> by him. He will murder children to avoid being laughed at. Asha is a laughing storm, his worst possible nightmare. And it all could have been avoided if Theon had just asked a question or two or attempted to inquire about what was going on in the Iron Islands, learning more about what Asha's place was in the Greyjoy court, learning about what she had been up to and what she was all about. And, you know, learning as well about the different people that are serving his father, Lord Balin, Sigurn, his master of ships, the person, his shipwright, rather, who has made the ships for him. He should know this guy because... As Theon is well, Theon well knows at this point in A Clash of Kings, the Ironborn are about to go to war, and it's probably a pretty smart idea to get to know the guy who's going to build the ships that are going to carry you and your men into battle, maybe, possibly. No, 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 he's just a peasant. I don't have to get to know the work. <sighs> Theon's, at this point, it's it's so, it's it's hilarious, and it's also, it, like the, the lines you're reciting, they do lend a smidge of sympathy and almost pity for Theon. It's something that's going to manifest itself into a lot of sympathy and pity come in A Dance of Dragons, especially when we reconnect with Theon Greyjoy. But here we're starting to get not just the inklings of how Theon's arc and A Clash of Kings are going to go, but that reader's sympathy is being slowly built. It's that slow burn storytelling that George loves to integrate. So that come A Dance of Dragons is going to be full blown and we're not going to necessarily forgive Theon for all the horrible shit he's going to do in A Clash of Kings, but we are going to feel immense pity for him and want him to get Get the fuck out of Winterfell. You sympathize for Theon in this book like you do with like a panicked rat in a cage in that <laughs> you don't want him to be there, but you also don't want to put your hand near him. Mm-hmm. And like in dance, like, you know, that rat has been through so many lab experiments that it's barely getting by and you just feel the, the intense weight of the, of the sympathy for him. So I didn't notice until this reread how we get several chapters in a row clustered around the dinner table, each from a different perspective. We've been the host with Brand 3 in Winterfell. 
a welcome guest with Catalan down in the Reach in Renly's camp, a not-so-welcome guest with John at Craster's Keep, and now we are Theon, a guest who wants to be the host but is being rejected. I love that they're playing the finger game as he comes in, just to emphasize it, just another Ironborn tradition that leaves him on the outside, a game he does not know how to play. As in Lordsport, as in the approach to the castle, no one pays him the slightest attention when he walks in. As he approaches the Seastone Chair, font of Ironborn identity from which all Greyjoy authority flows, Theon sees Asha next in line for it. Theon took the empty seat beside Asha. Leaning close, he hissed in her ear, You're in my place. She turned to him with innocent eyes. Brother, surely you are mistaken. Your place is at Winterfell. Her smile cut. And yeah, this knife cuts even deeper than the previous ones, because Asha is getting at the same roadblock that Uncle Aaron did in Theon 1, which is that everyone sees him as a Stark. His place, as far as they're concerned, is at Winterfell, where his presence won't bring shame on everyone, where he won't remind these fools, drunk on their own image, that the last time they tried this, they got their asses kicked by the supposedly inferior mainlanders. And again, even if he wasn't the most useless entitled gasbag in Westeros... Theon would never have been able to get around this image as an outsider. And something I really like about Asha's character is that she understands that deep down and sympathizes. And for all her mockery, her intentions towards Theon aren't actually malign. As she points out in this dinner scene, she did give him genuinely good advice, and she tries to make him understand that his attitude is the problem. This is Asha's version of tough love, humiliating Theon in the hopes of building him back up into a better man, someone she can work with. But what she doesn't yet understand is that Theon's identity is so fragile that he'll just bolt like a panicked deer in the direction of performative bloodshed rather than follow her lead and build it slowly. Asha, on the other hand, is fully invested in her performance, hence that husband and suckling babe routine which gets everyone in the room on her side. Asha is just a force of pure charisma, like Robert in his prime. Balin is smiling, Victarion greets her fondly in A Feast for Crows, and Aaron admits in the privacy of his thoughts in The Forsaken that she was his favorite of Balon's children. Even Euron laughs when Asha mocks Eric Ironmaker at the King's Moot. But this is not because Asha was just born this way. She has had to cultivate this persona in order to be accepted as Balin's heir, hence her mockery of Theon's clothes. She's trying to set herself apart. The husband and suckling babe routine isn't just a fun way of taking little bro down a peg. It's a way of answering the inevitable question about why she's in charge instead of taking care of a husband and a suckling babe. It grounds the gender transition from Balin to Asha in the imagery of reaving of old way violence. This comforts people. There is some continuity between old and new. Again, Asha just performs this role so much better than Theon, and he will commit atrocities that make even her flinch in order to outdo her. Right, you have that line when from Theon's fourth chapter in, in a clash or fifth chapter to Clash of Kings, where Asha is sitting on. Of course, she's sitting in Ned Stark's seat. Was when she comes into Winterfell, and she asks Theon, "Which one gave you more trouble, the cripple or the or the baby?" Like it's it's very much like that Asha is like cutting into this, and she's it, she's utilizing humor in order to look at this horrible situation that Theon has done, this horrible act that Theon has done. Uh, something else that, that really struck me about this this dinner scene is the a little bit of a comparison, a little bit to almost to the Red Wedding. If you remember from the Red Wedding, the food is shitty and horrible in the Red Wedding because, you know, Walter Frey is not going to serve, as, as you've said in the past, Walter Frey is not going to serve the best food to men who are just about to die. In this scene, feast scene here, we get the same sort of vantage point of... <laughs> of bad food being served. You almost get the sense that Balin Greyjoy is not going to waste good food on men he's about to send out to die for him. And this kind of gets at the heart of Balin Greyjoy as a character, and we are going to talk extensively about him in a moment here, about his battle plan, and how callous he is, not just in giving this guy, giving his men the final 
meal before they set off to set off to war, but and also of giving them the shit food. He's not going to spend food on money. He's, he's not going to he's not going to spend money on good food for men who are just about to die. Come on, that's that's uh, come on. We're we're the, we're the great choice, and we hard as iron and stuff like that. That's true. I mean, they also they also just don't have nicer food there. I think though on the Iron true. Islands, like this, that's kind of the atmosphere you get. And Balin has been feasting them every night. Theon said, so I don't get the sense he's necessarily close-handed with them. I just think like uh, like this is good fare for the Ironborn. Theon is just used to much nicer food at Winterfell, where they take this sort of thing seriously. That's true. That that could be true enough. So now we speaking of Balin Greyjoy, now we finally get to the seminal event of this chapter, which is Balin's master plan so to speak. It's only fitting that this chapter closes with the comedy bit of Theon stumbling into Balin's chambers after almost falling off of the rope bridge, and everyone stopping the pleasantries to get on with the plan to spend the least amount of time around Theon as possible. Really, that pity starts to ramp up at the end of this chapter. But now that everyone's assembled, it's time for Balin Greyjoy and Lord Reaper Pike to bring his strategic vision for how the Ironborn will defeat the North. <laughs> All right, so let's break it down very, very quickly. Theon's role is a shaping operation, so he's going to harass the Stony Shore, bringing the lords and garrisons out of their castles. Asha also has a shaping role. She's going to take Deepwood Mott. Victarion is going to be the decisive operation. He's going to seize and hold Moat Kaelin. And Balin rationalizes that if they can seal Robb Stark from re-entering the north, they will have the war as good as... One? I don't know about that. The Lannisters will then push up from the south as the hammer. Victarion will be the anvil. But what about the men the North has left behind? Well, they're just cravens and boys, green boys. Nothing to worry about, so says Balin. And then Winterfell will very definitely surrender within the year, and they all get to make everyone thralls and salt wives. Lovely. Guys, holy shit, but this is extremely dumb, even by Balin Greyjoy standards. First, let's let's talk about, let's break it down this way. We'll talk about the strategy, then we'll talk about the tactics, and then I'll talk about the, the ethics of it all. So, first, the geopolitical strategy. Like we've talked about with Tyrion and with Renly, they only imagine scenarios where everything goes exactly as they planned. Balon follows suit, but he compounds his arrogance by not asking first when he could have for help. At least Renly was smart enough to grab up a puppet master, I mean a benefactor, in the Tyrells and the Reach before striking off. Tyrion too is working to bring Dorne into the orbit of the Iron Throne. But Balon refuses to ask anyone for help, even when their interests coincide. Now, later on, Balin is going to do a bit of post-facto asking, but Tywin is going to see right through this in a storm of swords. King Balin's longships are occupied for the nounce, Lord Tywin said politely, as are we. Greyjoy demands half the kingdom as the price of alliance, but what will he do to earn it? Fight the Starks? He is doing that already. Why should we pay for what he has given us for free? So like we talked about back in Catelyn's first chapter and Theon's first chapter, Balin Greyjoy is forsaking any useful allies when there are allies available until he decides he actually, well, actually, I really should kind of get those guys on my side. But then what's Balin's imagined end state and the end of his glorious invasion? The rest shall be ours, forest and field and hall, and we shall make the folk our thralls and salt wives. This is this pure Conan the Barbarian, crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentation of their women barbarism. But this end, I think, when we we got to kind of dig down a little bit deeper into this. This end ensures that the entire North is going to fight to the death rather than surrender. The Ironborn offer nothing besides chains, rape, and if you somehow evade both of these fates, they'll make sure you face certain death when their livestock and cattle are stolen. So it's going to be the fight to the death sort of deal across tens of thousands of square miles of unfamiliar territory. So that's why the geopolitical strategy is fucking shit. 
on to the tactics. Bad tactics. AKA Balin forgets that White Harbor exists and that Moat Kalen also <laughs> faces to the north. <laughs> like this guy is such a fucking idiot, guys. Yeah, I just can't even begin. So Balin compounds his idiotic geopolitical strategy by choosing an invasion of the north, which targets only one half of the region. Guess what location is ever mentioned in this grand strategy? Okay, it's probably better if we talk about the bit, the locations Balin specifically mentions. The Stony Shore, Deepwood Bot, Mokalen, and Winterfell. No mention of, oh, I don't know, say, Bear Island, The Last Hearth, Torn Square, Barrowton, The Dreadfort, Carhold, and especially White Harbor. Balin sort of rolls all these locations up in terms of their military power as Cravens, Old Men, and Green Boys. But we as readers know that's not the case. There is a significant military force remaining in the north, concentrated especially around White Harbor. In A Game of Thrones, we learn that Rob has ordered most of the Manderlees and their vassal hosts to remain in the north, but it's not just the reader who knows this information. Theon knows it too. He sat in war councils with Rob Stark. He's even present when Catelyn arrives with Willis and Wendell Manderly at Moat Kaelin back in A Game of Thrones, Catelyn 8. And speaking of Moat Kaelin, hey, Balin, I know you're all about, quote, sealing off the south causeway to the Moat Kaelin. Are you aware that there's another causeway from the north? Just, just wondering... Rob Stark is going to make this point explicitly come a storm of swords, planning to utilize the Northern Causeway into Moat Kaelin in order to kick Victarion out of the North. And that leads me to my second, and, and that leads me to my third point about how this is a colossal tactical blunder on Balin Greyjoy's part. Balin fails to utilize the one person in his war council who is familiar with the North, Theon. Because of Balin Greyjoy's wounded pride and rejection of his son, he refused to even consider Theon's ideas about how the Northern invasion should go. Theon says, I have some suggestions. And Balin replies, when I require your counsel, I shall ask for it. And at one level, the reader's primed to laugh at Theon again for getting sucker punched. And yeah, you can imagine Balin rolling his eyes at this, quote, kid trying to play general in the war. But on another level, this is fucking bonkers. I mean, yeah, Theon's a braggart, but he's not lying about being part of Brindatali's picked scouts and participating in both the Battle of the Whispering Wood and the Battle of the Camps. So the boy's got some military experience under his belt. A bit more recent military experience than Victarion, for instance. Let's Nash or two. But Balin is making a much more colossal error in refusing to even hear Theon out than simply his military experience. Theon didn't just live in the north for 10 years. He visited all of the castles, towns, and cities as Ned Stark's ward. He knows the defenses, personalities, the political divisions that the Greyjoys could exploit. You could easily imagine a scenario where Balin gets the inside scoop on things like, oh, I don't know, the potential to exploit the Hornwood inheritance crisis, how Lady Dustin holds the Starks in contempt, the simming tension between the Umbers and the Manorlees, etc., etc., etc. There's a lot of things that Balin is, is, is missing out by not hearing from Theon. But Balin's not going to hear any of this because, like we were saying in Theon's first chapter, Balin has a sad, and he can't let go of those deep psychological scars left over from his failure of a first rebellion. So then finally, we've talked about the, the geopolitical strategy, we've talked about the tactics, let's talk about Balin's immoral, unjust war, or as I'm calling this, why St. Augustine thinks Balin Greyjoy is a fucking moron. To speak a little more seriously for a moment here, two years back, the New York Times writer Rukimi Kalamaki released her incredible Caliphate podcast, which I really recommend everyone listen to if you have the chance. It details the rise, rule, and fall of ISIS in Iraq and in Syria. And one of the most heartbreaking episodes of that podcast detailed ISIS's siege and attempted genocide of the, Z- of the Yazidi people on the Sinjar Mountain. What I didn't know prior to listening to that episode was that ISIS targeted the Yazidi people because they were polytheists. They were not, quote, people of the book. And they could force the Yazidi women into sexual slavery, kill the men, and enslave the children. You know, coming back to this chapter and getting Balin's perspective on why he wants to invade the North, Balin more than well, more than a little resembles that mentality. You recall Balin's expected reward for this invasion. The rest shall be ours, forest and field and hall, and we shall make the folk our thralls and salt wives. So 
Balin's entire aim is to conquer the North and make the people slaves of the Ironborn, chattel and sex slaves. Remind me again why Balin Greyjoy is never cited as among the biggest monsters in A Song of Ice and Fire again? It's a, it's a question in my mind. But hey, we can sound smart about Balin Greyjoy too and bring in our old friend St. Augustine to talk about just war theory and why Balin fails every goddamn ethical principle of war. So Augustine had basically... Five, I think it's five or six principles of warfare, right authority, right intention, reasonable hope, proportionality, and last resort. I don't feel like I have to go into depth on each one why Balin fails this, but he fails every single one of those principles. The right authority, he doesn't have the right to rebel. Right intention, his intention is to enslave people and steal their, their crops. Reasonable hope, as we talked about, the Great Joys don't have a reasonable hope of, of success in taking the North. Proportionality, what, what, why, why is Balin invading and killing all these people because of, of why again? There's, there's no proportionality here of, of, what, of what's going on. And this is not a defensive war either. This is an offensive war. And finally, as a last resort, Balin Greyjoy doesn't even consider diplomacy at all. It's not, war isn't a last resort for him. It is the first resort for him. So Balin Greyjoy, motherfucking dumb. I hate him. He's terrible. And the geopolitical, tactical, and ethical case for the war is just bonkers. Moot doesn't exist. Mwah. Perfectly said, sir, on every level. Thank it's you. so clear on Riri that Balin is making the same mistakes as Theon, just on a larger scale. Just as Theon strolled into the Iron Islands, assuming everyone would step to and recognize him as the heir, Balin intends on controlling the North through sheer ubermensch force of will. <laughs> Both of them come up hard against reality. The old ways, the old way delusions effect on strategy mutates we can win and here's how into we will win because God says we're inherently the best. You can see traces of the former in Balin's strategy, like he does know they need Moat Kaelin to bottle Rob up in the south, he knows they need a base in the interior, he knows it would be good to draw out and scatter some lords if possible, that's what he sends Theon to do, but there's no follow-through, no next step after the initial shock. Balin leaves his soldiers in place for six months and then dies when Euron comes home. Theon, for all his follies, knows enough to speak up here and say, hey, dad, what about everyone who's still, you know, in the north? Rob didn't take everyone, he didn't have time to. As you pointed out, White Harbor alone offers a potent challenge to Ironborn rule, let alone all the other fighting men left in the North. Balin just got lucky that he invaded during the Hornwood Crisis, as you say, of which he appears ignorant, and even luckier that said crisis empowered Ramsay's rise to power. Otherwise, Sir Roderick would have rallied the North in Bran's name at Winterfell, kicked Asha out of Deepwood Mott even quicker than Stannis, <laughs> and presumably made plans to attack Victarion at Moat Caelan in conjunction with Rob when he returned to the North. Even Asha, the relatively smart one in the room, can only see her own prospects, that she's always wanted a castle, and now it's time to take it. It's already a feast for crows. And Theon, meanwhile, as you say, he can't leverage the one useful asset he has, intelligence about the North, and is reduced to being babysat by actual experienced reavers, his uncle Aaron and Dagmar Clefjaw, who we'll meet in Theon 3. Ultimately, Balin is left with his dick in the wind, just like Theon, who was robbed of dignity one last time at Chapter's End, when he can't hold his wine and must lean on Asha. <laughs> And you know, she does help him. She helps him across the bridge where their father will die, indicating once more that for all Asha's merciless, taboo-breaking power play, she does have Theon's best interest at heart, which you cannot say about their father or their uncles. And George closes out Theon too with one more perfect, devastating joke, when Theon says he liked Asha better as Eskred, and Asha says, well, that's fair, I liked you better when you were nine. Theon is still lost in the projection, the fantasy, the songs and stories his dick loves so much. He's a man-child, and Asha wishes... He was just still a literal child. Like, on a personal level, politics aside, that really cuts deeper than anything else she says in the chapter. 
Asha missed her little brother, the nine-year-old she knew, and he's been replaced by this bumbling narcissist whose brain defers to his dick and who hates her now. Everything that happened to Theon since Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon came to break his childhood, all the experiences that have made him the man who swaggered into POV status at the start of this book, Asha wishes he could just take it all back and be the boy she knew. And by book's end, Theon will too. He'll want to take so much back. But he can't, and neither can she, and neither can Dad. In this chapter, they roll the dice to their doom. They absolutely do. It's Ultimately, Theon's story is a story of heartbreak and a song of ice and fire, especially in A Clash of Kings, as the parts of him start to fade away, the sense of nobility. With like George has had this this saying that every character thinks they're, they're a hero in their own mind and Theon starts coming that way here but as he starts to devolve ethically and morally that hero is replaced by by pure villainy and by pure assholishness by pure murder as we're going to see in Theon's later chapters his next chapter Theon 3 is going to have him talk about how they attacked this village by the stony shore and they took all the hot women for salt wives and then they raped the ugly ones and killed them afterwards it's like God damn! Like uh, it's bloody mummer stuff, and it's from it, the POV of one of the attackers. It's it's an intense move on George's part. It, it really is. It's it's a it's a courageous move on George's part too, not to flinch away from from the horror of that chapter. So I think that happily takes us to our foreshadowing groundwork portion of this episode. God, the end chapters are only going to get worse from here on out, aren't they? <laughs> oh my God! Indeed, and this chapter sets up a lot of that. As with Theon one, we see George working hard to set up. My own favorite child, Euron Crozai. Here we learn that he has a terrible reputation, both at home and abroad. And George will expand upon this at length in A Feast for Crows, when Euron defies Asha's prediction here and wins the Seastone Chair despite being a relative outsider. Or perhaps because he's a relative outsider. Because one thing you can see is that Euron handles being an outsider politically so much better than Theon. For Theon, it's his permanent weakness. Euron on A Feast for Crows manages to spin it into a strength. Right, you can almost imagine a scenario where Theon could do similarly here and leverage some of his some of his experience, not fully, but his, his experience in the War of the Five Kings, in order to be the be the type of person that uh, that could potentially rally the the Ironborn to his side, maybe win a little bit of respect from his father. But instead, Theon is a fragile, silly man, man child, as you said, well, really well, and he can't do that. Euron definitely is going to do that. Come a feast for crows. So we also get this reference here in uh, Asha speaking to a man in Lordsport named Carl, which is a pretty common Ironborn name. But maybe this is the one who later became Carl the Maid, Asha's lover. Speaking of which, Asha's not kidding when she likes to be on top. We see the proof with Carl at Deepwood Mod and Dance with Dragons, which, yeah, it's one of George's better sex scenes, though that's not saying much. As Theon says, he if he doesn't like his father's plans or takes his part, he's willing to go off script. And he's definitely going to do those in those in his later chapters, taking Winterfell before sealing his own doom at Ramsay's hand. So he ends up developing this plan specifically to thwart his father and to work and to ensure that his he gets the glory that was denied him and given to Asha. So he's going to take the greatest castle in the north, Winterfell. That's going to go really well for him, I think. <laughs> yeah, Theon is, you know, he's just smart enough to know he's setting himself up for trouble, but not smart enough to stop himself. Like he is another bit of foreshadowing here is this very revealing aside to himself when he says he doesn't have any gold or jewels, you know, to take off the wildling that he killed in a Game of Thrones. He doesn't have anything he paid the iron price for. He says to himself, that's my cursed luck. I kill the poor. And yeah, he will again. Those poor Miller's boys in the north, their bodies used to stand in for the rich Starklings. Theon will kill them not to take the iron price of jewelry or, you know, any kind of money from them. He'll do it to take the iron price of his crown at Winterfell. That's his, his trade. But yeah, Theon always kills the poor. 
it's it's skin crawling for sure and of course he does kill those miller's boys at the insistence of his friend and servant reek Hmm. we'll find out more about him come uh, theon's fourth fifth and sixth and seventh chapters in a clash of kings so finally in terms of our foreshadowing groundwork theon comments that smiler his horse is a quote hell horse and has quote fire in his eyes oh boy this seems to me like some horrific foreshadowing of what happens to poor poor smiler at the end of a clash of kings remember those final lines from theon's chapters in a clash of kings before dance of dragons the last thing theon Greyjoy saw was smiler kicking free of the burning stables with his mane ablaze screaming rearing Oh yeah, that's one hell of an image, and I yeah, I love that you know Theon talks about being someone who smiles at inappropriate times here, and that's just you know that 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 feeds so perfectly into Ramsay breaking his teeth and taking away a smile when you get to a dance with dragons. All these images of song and story and smiles and sex they all corrupt and fade in Theon's arc, and yeah, we're gonna get more a lot more of that when we get to a Clash of Kings Theon three. Absolutely. So that about wraps us up for foreshadowing and groundwork. Moving to our discussion portion. We here at the Nauticast generally love Theon's storyline in Season 2 of Game of Thrones, and that it's not exactly a contrarian position, it's one of the best parts of the show. But there are elements of tone and character that play very differently in that storyline than here in the books, and I think this chapter provides the perfect opportunity to talk about that, because this scene plays very differently in Season 2 in a number of ways. Absolutely. So, this chapter is one that we said at the beginning of this episode was very much a jokey kind of funny chapter of what Theon Greyjoy is experiencing and all the humiliation he's receiving at the butt end of being the joke of, of everything in this chapter but it's seemingly in, in a clash of kings excuse, excuse me seemingly in, in Game of Thrones the showrunners David Benioff Dan Weiss and the sort of writers that are associated with the show decided to change the tone a little bit and they decided to make a much more somber tone for Theon. Think specifically about the scene where Theon has learned that his father plans to attack the North, and there's that wonderful, amazing scene where Theon burns the letter he's about to send to Rob Stark, warning Rob that Balon plans betrayal. That doesn't exist in, in A Clash of Kings. And this is not to say that one element of the story is better than the other, but rather it's to say that I think the show made an interesting and, and really good choice in, in terms of, of changing the adaptation, in terms of, ch- of changing the tone. Gone are the jokes and gone is the kind of, Theon is a, is a dumbass and he's getting his comeuppance and was replaced by this kind of tone where it's sad because ultimately Theon's story is sad. It's not to say that I prefer one aspect of the story as opposed to the other, but it is to say that the tones are different. And I think it's an interesting way that George and David Benioff and Dan Weiss decided to show these different scenes. I think it's it's interesting to note that really, you know, we, we talk casually about Theon's arc being one of divided loyalties and caught between selves. It's, it's bracing to come back and remember, oh, right, in the books, Theon never worries about his loyalty to the Starks. Like, that's never a concern in these first couple chapters. He doesn't think about the ramifications of switching sides and helping attack the North, even though he was at Rob's side. Like, that doesn't, it doesn't occur to him how big a deal that is until it's already far too late. And I think that might translate uh, better to uh, the books than the show. I think the show, to get any kind of investment in Theon, you, you really have to make him a little more sympathetic from the start. You have to have him have a genuine love for the North and how stark that he then sacrifices. In the books, it's not so much that he's caught between loyalties. It's just caught between two worlds in which he doesn't belong. It's not like... In the show, you get more the sense that like oh, Theon gave up a life in the North he could have had. As he says later in season three, I chose wrong. In the books, it's more there really is no good choice for <laughs> Theon. He's really not welcome anywhere and he never was going to be. And then the the kind of intensity of the storyline is he still manages to find the worst choice even from an array of bad choices and yeah that i think that was always going to work better 
in the books because you have George, you know, doing this thing where he's trying to use a, a villain protagonist and make Theon's POV kind of feel like a, a cage you're in, and that flips so beautifully in A Dance with Dragons. And without the POV structure to guide you, I think they made the right decision to go in a different direction in the show. Agreed. And I think the other thing, too, is we've talked about in our first Theon episode is that George retrofitted what was essentially supposed to be Tyrion's plotline of burning Winterfell onto Theon Greyjoy. So he didn't have a lot of the necessary buildup to make Theon the character that he turns out to be in, in A Clash of Kings. The showrunners had the ability of having A Clash of Kings in mind when they started to craft Theon Greyjoy. So if we go back to the, to season one, we have everyone from Maester Lewin to Bran kind of mocking Theon and being like, and what's the, what's the line that Lewin says to Theon when he's out there shooting archery? He's like, and Theon's like bragging about, oh, we're great lovers. The Ironborn are amazing, these different things. And Maester Lewin's they're also really great at failing and losing at wars too. This all works really well to set up Theon's entry as a major character and major cast member come season two. And I have to imagine that George, if he had the ability of hindsight in mind when he was writing The Clash of Kings, maybe writing a Game of Thrones, foresight rather, that he would have maybe integrated a little bit more setup and groundwork for Theon's eventual turn and maybe could have gone on a different sadder type of tone. Another thing too, and this is also being brought up by several people in the comments here for our, our live cast, and we really appreciate everybody turn, tuning in, of course, is that the music, the music that you utilize for the Greyjoy scenes in the Iron Islands is sad. I mean, the the the, the, the tones of What Is Dead May Never Die is the, that OS, that is that track from season two's official soundtrack that's just really sad. It's one of my, it's probably my favorite track from Game of Thrones, the, the show. And I think that also helps to set the tone. So I guess for those of you who are going to be future, adapt, who are going to adapt future novels and future books, you could play around with the tone. You can change the tone. You can make it thematically cognizant and thematically interesting and unique in your own way. And that's what you're supposed to do. And I think that's to the credit of David Benioff and Dan Weiss in adapting and changing what was a pretty jokey, insulting, mocking tone for Theon's chapters in A Clash of Kings that George had. And you follow the ripple effects of that outward. Like Yara and the show isn't joking and, you know, mocking Theon most of the time. She's actively angry at him in season mm-hmm. two and thinks he has divided loyalties because the character in the show does. Whereas in the books, that's never really a question. It's it's not like, it's not really that Asha considers that Theon might be a spy, like an asset for Rob Stark. It's more just you don't belong here. You're pathetic. Your attempts to make yourself belong here, you know, are, are, are making you pathetic. And yeah, you don't get much peacock swagger from Theon in the show. And in part, that's a, an effective casting that Alfie Allen just looks different from book Theon. Hmm. So I think, I think this is, this is a case where it's a, a series of correct decisions given an overall framework. I think it's, it's a, it's a great way to talk about the adaptational process because it's not one big change. It's a series of changes and then ripple effects that I think were followed through pretty well. I absolutely agree. So I think that that about wraps us up for this episode for A Clash Kings Theon 2. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you for those of you who tuned in for the live cast. As always, if you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. Follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. 
We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybold, the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers, Justiciar of the Trident, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim the Knight who was guided by voices, Sir Courtenay, what did the Five Finger say to the face Penrose, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mar Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, and Sir Michael Mertens. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely, thank you guys so much for your support. So, join us next week for Tyrion 6 as Tyrion bonds with Cersei over their joy at Renly and Stannis fighting each other. <laughs> Only for Tyrion to poison his sister. Man, you gotta love all these healthy, respectful sibling relationships in A Clash of Kings. Everyone's just getting along and skipping and holding hands, and it's all only going to get worse when Euron comes to town, too, because all sibling relationships look jolly compared to Euron, so it's going to be fun to get back for another King's Landing chapter. You know, it's easy to get, you know, these Tyrion chapters might seem samey after a while, but this is a really good one. It really, really is. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for those of you who have watched our livecast, and thank you to our patron supporters, and we will see you guys next week.